Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 28 to 44. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Well, it's lovely to be with you here at the 945. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on the uh, staff team here, if we haven't met before, but I serve more in the evening part of the church, so I'm not usually awake at this time <laughs> Sunday morning. I'm preaching usually at the city congregation at 4.30 and then going to the 6.30 service where many of our Roots members who are in their 20s to 30s attend because I work with them as well. So what a delight to be here with you bright and early on this gorgeous Oxford morning. Why don't we pray as we look into God's word. Father, life feels complicated. As we prayed this morning, our world feels complicated. And we offer it and ourselves to you now and pray that by a work of your Holy Spirit, you might speak to us and prepare us to gather around this table behind me shortly and offer you the worship that's truly due your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Chinese philosopher uh, Confucius, who wrote uh, around the 6th century uh, before Christ, said this, Life is really simple 
but we insist on making it complicated. And then another wise person uh, of, of our day and age, Martha Stewart, you might have heard her name, uh, uh, American businesswoman with a great uh, media industry talking about how to order one's life and household and, and so on, said life is too complicated not to be orderly. And surely her life did get quite complicated when she was accused of and imprisoned for fraud, wasn't it? But how complicated would you say your life is at present on a scale of 1 to 10? 1 being not terribly complicated whatsoever, 10 being if you were to add one more wit of complexity to your life that you might just fall over and crash and curl up into a ball. What number would you give yourself at this present season of your life? I think Julie, my wife, and myself, we're, we're pushing it up there in this current season. We're probably uh, eight, nine in terms of the feeling of life complexity. Three kids, two of which are teenagers. Two nations are involved in our life, Canada and the UK. One ill parent currently in an institution. Until recently, there were two applications with UK border because I messed up the first one. Thankfully, there's only one now. One old vehicle. Eight internet-connected devices throwing hundreds of notifications at our family every day. And then there are the five bicycles. And here I thought that I once loved fixing bicycles. To this past week, if, if more bicycle drama happens in my family in the week to come, I don't know what's going to happen. But that's just my own little life at this particular season. I wonder how yours feels. And that's even before we look out to the wider world and all the complexity that we have currently. War in Ukraine, traumatic events of global scale happening around the world. And amidst all this complexity and all that flies at us every day, every week, every month, every year, I increasingly feel a need for a singular directive that would unite the whole of my life. One single clarion call that says, Andy, this is what life is about. Such that amid all the complexity and the pressure and all the arrows that are, are coming our way, at least there would be a singular directive that would lead uh, and unify all this, all this diversity. Well, whether you feel like life is complicated at this particular season for you or not, what a grace that Jesus Christ offers us that singular directive that's meant to unify all. A singular priority that's meant to characterize every single human life, whether Christian or not, whether one considers oneself religious or not, singular priority for humanity, full stop. Every human being and we human beings as a collective, you and all of us here in this room and in this wider church. Jesus speaks of a singular devotion. Give all 
for the love of God, he teaches. One singular devotion. And then in this passage, we'll also see one stiff warning, which relates to it, and one much-needed encouragement that also relates to that singular devotion. So first, a singular devotion. Give your all for the love of God. Jesus is in the temple courts. He's been asked a series of questions by various religious leaders, and so far, most of the questions have not been genuine. They've been launched at Jesus in an attempt to trap him, to trip him up, to expose him to public ridicule. And he deftly navigates each of those questions with a staggering amount of wisdom and grace. And here another question comes, which wonderfully is genuine. We see as the, as the passage rolls on that it's sincere and comes from a heart and mind that really wants to know what Jesus has to say. Jesus has just finishing, finished answering a question from some people called the Sadducees, who, if you want to read earlier on in Mark chapter 12, you'll see that they didn't believe that there was a bodily resurrection. And uh, they had long time been opposed to other Jewish people who did believe that there would be a bodily resurrection. And so they approached Jesus to ask what he thinks about this, and he gives an incredibly powerful answer, saying that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Have you not read? There is a resurrection. And he speaks to the issue of marriage in the resurrection, human marriage, and clarifies that we as human beings won't be married in the afterlife. We'll be like uh, the angels of heaven. We'll be more like brothers and sisters with one another, with our uh, marriage being between Christ and us, his, his church. And so this man in our passage, having heard that incredible answer to the Sadducees, now asks Jesus the question that's on his heart and mind. Mark 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is most important? Now at this time, the religious leaders who talked about the commandments of the Old Testament reckoned that there were 613 individual different commandments that could be identified in the Hebrew Bible, or what we call often the Old Testament. 613. It's complicated, in other words. And so, naturally, there was a desire to simplify and understand how do we unify all this diversity that we see in God's will? How do we sum it up? And so there was discussion about greater commandments and lesser ones, weightier commandments and lighter ones, and that was common. And so this question is put to Jesus, and he answers by quoting uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So there, there, aren't, uh, there isn't a multiplicity of gods. There's one God, and he's the Lord. 
over all. And because there's one God who's Lord over all, he's owed a singular devotion. A devotion that no other thing is, is owed by us to that extent. And this devotion is all-encompassing. It, enwraps, it wraps up the whole of your life. Do you notice how he takes all the various capacities that we might have, quoting again from uh, the Old Testament, and emphasizes that each of these capacities are meant to be offered in full devotion to God. Heart and soul, which are the, the very center of our being as humans. Some have said it's like the command center of our life that directs the course of our whole existence. It's the seat of uh, emotion and will and decision. And we're told that all of that is to be offered in devotion to God. All of heart and soul, all of mind, the place where we reflect and uh, run over through the gears uh, and try and discern what's true and what's false and come to an understanding of things. That whole capacity is meant to be offered to the one Lord. And then all of our strength, that ability of ours to persevere through difficulty, through resistance, that capacity of ours to keep going is meant to be offered wholly to God. Did you notice in Jesus' quotation that there are four different alls? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. All for the love of God. A singular devotion. Now, lest that feel uh, a bit too heavy uh, for you, and you might, might feel, is this some kind of external thing that's being laid upon me? Uh, or is it kind of like a ladder that I, that I have to strenuously climb, or a hill um, that, that's really too great for me, something I'm not really meant to do, but have to do? Instead, here, Jesus is, uh, is expressing to us what you might call just the basic instructions for human life. Kind of like the owner's manual of being a human being. If you want to open up the owner's manual and figure out how it works and how it's meant to work and how it's meant to be used, here's the main thing that can be said in God's uh, owner's manual direction book for us. You and me were created to be ones who offer the whole of our love, our devotion, to God. Far from being something that's like alien to you, this instruction gives you a key to understand who you're really meant to be. I mentioned my old uh, Renault Megane car that we have. And if you, if you turn into the uh, owner's manual of it, it makes clear that you're not meant to put diesel in this engine. And so if I were to pull up to the, uh, the, the petrol station and I see those different types of fuel and I open up my fuel uh, uh, entry portal, it says there, do not put diesel in this engine. It said, just put the regular fuel in. And likewise here, 
in Jesus' instructions about what's meant to be our singular devotion, it's like that. He's saying, here's who you're wired to be. And the more you depart from this as, as the main thing in your life, the more you depart from my design for you. And the more you begin to live against the very grain of who I've woven you to be, you're made to love me with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. And you're not beginning to even function at the basic level of who I've made you until that comes clear. I was speaking with someone who was uh, not yet a Christian, and they were raising the fact that there are many, many good people in their life who wouldn't consider themselves religious at all. And he, he was saying to me, what's unique about Christian people? I've known many, many non-Christian people who live morally upright lives, who serve in their communities, who remain faithful to their spouses, and engaged with their children? I mean, what's really different if, if you say Christians are one way, and yet I see other people who aren't Christians living a good, moral, upright life? Well, that question brought to this passage would say, in response, well, it all matters what the definition of, of good is. And by this standard... Well, there's, there's no one good, is there? Not one. I'm not sure how you feel you're doing in your just completely free uh, devotion, singular devotion to God. But the Bible says that it's normal, both that this is God's will for us, who we're made to be, but also that we so regularly fall short of it. And by this standard, not one of us in this room as morally upright as we've been in our families and in our businesses and our communities this week, can say that we're good because this is the standard of what good is. A singular devotion, giving all for the love of God. But just to flesh that out a bit more, Jesus goes on and explains further. He says that a love for God goes hand in hand with love for our fellow humanity who are made in his image. He's been asked to say what the greatest commandment is, which would lead us to believe that we could expect one answer, but instead he gives two. The most important one, he quotes uh, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, but then he says the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So it seems... That from the greatest commandment quickly flows a second, which goes hand in hand with the first. So much so that you can't really even begin to speak about love for God without, without also speaking about our love for one another as Christians and our love for all human beings who are in our immediate lives and indeed our love for those who who are living their human lives in other parts of the world whom our lives affect. You see, the standard is to think uh, myself into your shoes and to ask, 
what I can see of your life and your situation, what would I, under God, want me to do to you were I in your shoes? And likewise, you're meant to think that way about me. What a high and wonderful calling and standard to not just do uh, good in the sense of doing minimal damage to one another, but notice how both of these are positive commands saying, here's what you are called to, to, to positively do to one another, to actively love each other in the way that we would want to be loved were we in the other's shoes. Uh, one of my teenagers got hungry last night, uh, wanted a quick trip to the Tesco to see what we could get as a snack. And as we approached the Tesco's, uh, came, a, came across um, a lovely man, sat there out front with his toque, his hat on the, on the ground, uh, gathering um, uh, some change and asking for some help. And so how, how would this apply to that situation? Here I've come across someone in, uh, uh, who's made in God's image, who is destitute, who's looking for help. And what this is saying is that I then begin to think about what would be good for me were I in his shoes. And that doesn't necessarily mean that what would be good for me is what I want and what I'm asking for. He was asking for uh, money, and, and we weren't comfortable with that for a variety of reasons because we didn't think it would most likely help him the most. But then we think, what, what likely would help in this particular situation? And that is to ask, in this one, you know, is there anything that I can get you while I'm, while I'm in there? And do you have a place to stay? And if you don't, can I, can I signpost you and, and show you some places and, um, and offer time and, and presence. And so you see, that's the kind of thinking that the Lord's calling us to do in the various relationships that we come across in our life. Love for God goes hand in hand with love for fellow humanity made in his image. And love for God also goes hand in hand with loving Christ as the Son of God. Here we come to this next part of the passage uh, the man has really resonated with Jesus' teaching. Well said, teacher. The man replied, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And then while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? When David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. You see, it was true that the Messiah would be a son of David, would come from the, the physical lineage of David. Uh, nothing less than that could, could, should be said about the Messiah. But Jesus begins to probe and push and say, actually more 
can be said about me than that. If you look back to the Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 110 is quoted here, Jesus says. And says, even there, David himself uh, said to his Lord, God, about something about another Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In other words, the Messiah would not only be human, he would be human, but he's more than that. He can be equated with the Lord himself. The Lord said to my Lord. And so he asks, whose son is the Messiah? And though the answer doesn't come abundantly clear in this text, it does come clear in other texts of the New Testament, that Jesus answers to that question, whose son ultimately is the Messiah? Well, he's the son of God. And so here, there's one God, but we all, all already begin to see an understanding of God as being Trinity. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is mentioned here as well, speaking by the Holy Spirit. And so this full devotion to God flows out in love for neighbor and is rightly given to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who is fully human, but also fully divine. So that word Lord there used twice in verse 36 connects with the, the, the times the word Lord is used up in the main commandment. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. All that's offered to Jesus Christ as well. He is fully human but he's also fully God. So, a devotion that's singular, give your all for the love of God. And now as we close, just one stiff warning and one much-needed encouragement. The stiff warning is to beware of substituting the love of God for religious showcasing. Beware of substituting the love of God for religious showcasing. He warns and says, watch out for the teachers of the law. These were religious leaders at the time, like the one who had asked the sincere question. And they had a habit of putting on the show of religion. Long white robes. Wanting the honorable seat in the synagogue, which would have been next to the chest where uh, the, the, the written law was kept on a scroll. Being honored as they went throughout the marketplace, the business world, with their long robes on. And Jesus says, beware of this. Did you notice how often in the passage the kind of externals of religion are mentioned? They're in the temple. Uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices are mentioned in verse 33. There are the robes of verse 38. There are the seats in the synagogue. There are the lengthy prayers of verse 40. And then there are the offerings of the temple that come in the account of the widow. And in our love for God, it's natural and right that it, it involves going to church 
It involves doing things that seem religious in the sight of other people. It's hard to escape that. In one way, it's right. But it's very dangerous indeed when that outward show of religion, whether it be our charitable giving and letting others see what we're doing in that, whether it be our church attendance, whether it be talk of our personal devotional lives or any other number of ways we can signal to other people, visibly and externally, who we want them to think we are internally. Any number of ways that we can do that. My goodness, is it ever dangerous indeed? And here, these leaders were putting on that show externally when the love of God had left the building of their hearts. A subtle danger of replacing the love for God with the approval, seeking the approval of religious people through religious outward acts. Watch out, he says. But if that's one stiff warning for us always to be aware of, not only in our own personal lives, but in our intuition as to who our leaders are in church and how we hold them to account and relate to them and how we challenge them, how we encourage them, we take that warning really seriously. But then a much-needed, finally, a much-needed encouragement. God simply asks us to devote to him what we have, not what we wish we had. And here comes the story of this poor widow who's got next to nothing in comparison to others. And they're in one part of the temple that women were allowed in, and offerings were taken there. And I'm told that there were 13 uh, trumpet-like receptacles, uh, that were kind of trumpet-shaped, through which offerings were, were submitted to the temple. And you can picture uh, people gathered there, and wealthy uh, uh, Jewish worshipers, or even Gentile worshipers, coming into the temple court and pouring their offerings into these uh, metal trumpet receptacles. And, you know, I guess for some, they walked up and kind of took their, their bag and emptied it out, and the cha-ching, 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 it went on for quite some time, you know. And maybe another bag came out, and cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And we all can hear... The, the staggering scope of their offering. And yet then, one widow comes. She's clearly dressed in a way that indicates that she's poor. She might have been uh, more elderly. And we can see that she's in a weak position in society. And yet she comes up to that receptacle, and we just hear the very slight sound of a Ting. And then a second ting. And then we'd see her turn and walk away. And we're thinking, oh, isn't that, isn't that lovely that she, she was able to give that? And meanwhile, we're thinking, well, thank goodness all those others came before and you know, funded the work of the temple with their lavish giving. But wonderful that this person uh, gave what they were able to give. But Jesus turns all that on its head. Calling his disciples to him, verse 43, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, 
This poor widow had put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live in. That word uh, translated everything is the same word that's mentioned translated as all earlier on when God, Jesus gives the commandment. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Here she gives all. She taps in to um, very meager coins. And yet Jesus sees her offering as be, not being less than, but greater than all the other offerings that they had heard clink down the trumpets. And I hope this is an encouragement to you. It's an encouragement to me. My heart, my soul can often feel flat. My understanding in comparison to others often feels weak, and there's so much more that I could know that they know that I don't know. My strength often feels failing often feel weak and overwhelmed. So I need this encouragement that God simply asks me to devote to him what I have, not what I wish I had in comparison to others. I mean, we're always playing that game, aren't we? That calculus of sizing up who others are and placing ourselves in, in hierarchy with them, whether we're greater or lesser. Or, and Jesus says no. Just offer me what you have, not what you wish you had. So I don't know how complicated life feels for you this morning, but here's a singular call that rings out over your life. Offer God all you have in devotion and worship to him. Let's pray as we prepare to sing, and as we come to the Lord's table. Jesus, thank you that you are so clear in what you ask of us. And each of us here, Lord, we're, we're very, very conscious that we fall really short of this call. But we thank you for how it does simplify our lives, and as we think about our work, as we think about our relationships, our singleness, or our married life, as we think about our parenting, we thank you for this call to love you with all that we are and to love others as we would ourselves want to be loved. We pray as we go through the rest of this service that you'd bring one situation or relationship to mind where these commands of yours can bring clarity as to what you're asking of us, where, where we feel often overwhelmed and weak. Please, would you help us to respond by giving you all that we are in love and by serving others as we would want to be served were we, were we in their shoes. We need your help with this, Lord, and we thank you for the cross of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.